The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Here are two voices from history for this new year. The first comes from about A.D. 64 in Rome, from the writer Seneca, from his letters from a Stoic. And this is what it says. You want to know my attitude toward liberal studies? Well, I have no respect for any study whatsoever, if its end is the making of money. Such studies are to me unworthy ones. They involve the putting out of skills to hire, and are only of value insofar as they may develop the mind without occupying it for long. Time should be spent on them only so long as one's mental abilities are not up to dealing with higher things. They are our apprenticeship, not our real work. Why, quote, liberal studies are so called is obvious. It is because they are the ones considered worthy of a free man. But there is really only one liberal study that deserves the name, because it makes a person free, and that is the pursuit of wisdom. Its high ideals, its steadfastness and spirit make all other studies puerile and puny in comparison. And the wonderful thing, at least about this paragraph and the focus on wisdom, is that you can probably find an almost uh, exact uh, parallel sentence or paragraph uh, from every culture of the ancient world um, and every religion as well. The pursuit of wisdom The question has sometimes been posed whether these liberal studies make a man a better person. But in fact, they do not aspire to any knowledge of how to do this, let alone claim to do it. Literary scholarship concerns itself with research into language, or history, if a rather broader field is preferred, or, extending its range to the very limit, poetry. Which of these paves the way to virtue. Attentiveness to words, analysis of syllables, accounts of myths, laying down the principles of prosody. What is there in all this that dispels fear, roots out desire, or reigns in passion? Or let us take a look at music, at geometry. You will not find anything in them which tells us not to be afraid of this desire tells us not to be afraid of this or desire that. 
And if anyone lacks this kind of knowledge, all his other knowledge is valueless to him. The question is whether or not that sort of scholar is teaching virtue. For if he is not, he will not even be imparting it incidentally. If he is teaching it, he is a philosopher. If you really want to know how far these persons are from the position of being moral teachers, observe the absence of connection between all things they study. If they were teaching one and the same thing, a connection would be evident, unless perhaps they managed to persuade you that Homer was actually a philosopher, though they refute their case by means of the very passages which lead them to infer it. For at one moment they make him a Stoic, giving nothing but virtue his approval, steering clear of pleasure, not even an offer of immortality, inducing him to stoop to the dishonorable. At another, they make him an Epicurean, praising the way of life of a society passing its days at peace and ease in an atmosphere of dinner parties and music-making. At another, Homer becomes a peripatetic, with a threefold classification of things good. At another, Homer is an academic, stating that nothing is certain. It is obvious that none of these philosophies is to be found in Homer for the very reason that they all are, the doctrines being mutually incompatible. Even suppose we grant these people that Homer was a philosopher. He became a wise man, surely, before he could recite any epics, so that we should be learning, so that what we should be learning, are the things which made him wise. Are you more concerned to find out where Ulysses' wanderings took him than to find a way of putting an end to our own perpetual wanderings? We haven't the time to spare to hear whether it was between Italy and Sicily that he ran into a storm or somewhere outside the area of the world we know. Wanderings as extensive as his could never in fact have taken place inside so limited an area when every day we are running into our own storms, spiritual storms, and are driven by vice into all the troubles that Ulysses ever knew. We are not spared those eye-distracting beauties or attackers. We, too, have to contend in various places with savage monsters reveling in human blood, insidious voices that beguile our ears, shipwrecks, and all manner of misfortune. What you should be teaching me is how I may attain such a love for my country, my father, and my wife, and keep on course for those ideals even after shipwreck. Why go into the question whether or not Penelope completely took in her contemporaries and was far from being a model of wifely purity any more than the question whether or not she had a feeling that the man she was looking at was Ulysses before she actually knew it. Teach me instead what purity is, how much value there is in it, whether it lies in the body or in the mind. And here I would have to differ with our friend Seneca. Um, it seems to me, and I think uh, at least this podcast shows my bias here, 
that the place that you learn those things, if you do want to learn them, uh, isn't through the dry philosophy, the, the dry discussion of philosophy, or the making of life into a mathematical equation. Uh, but it is in stories. It is in the stories that uh, our art and our culture uh, teach us. And um, I'm struck, he's talking about philosophy, and I'm struck and reminded by uh, what it's like sometimes to read the discourses of the Buddha in the Pali canon, the, uh, the oldest canon of Buddhist literature. And sometimes it is like reading, like we, what we would expect reading philosophy to be. It's very dry, and it goes point by point by point through whatever it is the Buddha is discussing. But at other times, uh, it's not like that at all. And the Buddha uses stories and parables from his own life and from the lives of others uh, to make his point. Um, and you sort of see, at, at least in my mind anyway, uh, people making Homer into a Stoic on one page an Epicurean on another page, a peripatetic in the next, an academic in the next. Um, that is simply what we do. That is simply what we need to do. And the only reason that literature like Homer or the religious scripture that we adhere to, the only reason those things last is precisely because of this ability to be bent and molded to the bias of the teacher or the needs of the student. Um, one day, uh, on a Monday, we might need an Epicurean Homer. On a Tuesday, we need a peripatetic one, and so on. Um, this is just the strength of the things that last. And it reminds me, too, of the early Christian fathers who weren't quite sure whether they should be reading Virgil and Homer or whether they should just focus on the Gospels. And I think it was St. Jerome who had the nightmare about uh, an angel or maybe uh, God himself or Jesus himself saying, um, what are you doing reading these pagan writers when you could be write reading the Gospels? Um, it's a perennial problem for people who feel deeply about these things. But uh, Seneca goes on to say, turning to the musical scholar, I say this, you teach me how bass and treble harmonize. See. Yes, you teach me how bass and treble harmonize, or how strings producing different notes can give rise to concord. I would rather you brought about some harmony in my mind and got my thoughts into tune. You show me which are the plaintive keys. I would rather you showed me how to avoid uttering plaintive notes when things go against me in life. The geometrician teaches me how to work out the size of my estates rather than how to work out how much a man needs in order to have enough. He teaches me to calculate, putting my fingers into the service of avarice instead of teaching me that there is no point whatsoever in that sort of computation, and that a person is none the happier for having properties which tire accountants out. Or to put it another way, how superfluous a man's possessions are when he would be a picture of misery if you forced him to start counting up single-handed 
how much he did possess. What use is it to me to be able to divide a piece of land into equal areas if I am unable to divide it with a brother? What use is the ability to measure out a portion of an acre with an accuracy extending even to the bits which elude measuring rod, which elude the measuring rod, if I am upset when some high-handed neighbor encroaches slightly on my property? The geometrician teaches me how I may avoid losing any fraction of my estates, but what I really want to learn is how to lose the lot and still keep smiling. Thank you, Seneca, for that. Uh, but what I really want to learn is how to lose the lot and still keep smiling. But I am being turned off the land my father and grandfather owned before me, some complain. Well, so what? Who owned the land before your grandfather? The legal experts say that acquisition by prescription never applies where the property concerned is actually public property. Well, what you possess and call your own is really public property, or mankind's property for that matter. Oh, the marvels of geometry. You geometers can calculate the area of circles, can reduce any given shape to a square, can state the distances separating stars. Nothing is outside your scope when it comes to measurement. Well, if you're such an expert, measure a man's soul. Tell me how large or how small that is. You can define a straight line. What use is that to you if you've no idea what straightness means in life? And that's a wonderful bit from Seneca's Letters from a Stoic. And uh, it completely sidesteps the current malaise, which says that you can only read someone like this you can only read a commentator or a thinker if you agree with everything that they say. Uh, the beauty of people like this is that you pick and choose and you see that life is not a matter of following someone perfectly, but of picking and choosing, of using your own intelligence. On the one hand, I love this because he is saying there is a limit to knowledge and what the academics can do with that knowledge. But on the other hand, what he is also doing is um, he sort of wants to get away from the world. He thinks that if you get away from worldly concerns, your life will somehow be perfected. And that is another malaise that it has taken me a while to get rid of myself. Um, and I'm reminded, actually, of a passage from Herman Hesse's novel, Steppenwolf, where you have where the main character is sort of a disgruntled uh, intellectual type who, I believe it's early on in the book, he makes fun of someone for listening to Mozart on a phonograph, or maybe it's just Mozart uh, listening to Mozart through uh, the radio. Maybe it, it probably is the phonograph. And by the end of the book, because he says you have to be able to be there live to see it, um, this is not Mozart on on a uh, on a vinyl disc, and it takes the end of the book for someone to tell him, um, "You will listen to Mozart, uh, you will listen to Beethoven, you will listen to whoever it is, uh, you will listen to readings of poetry, 
strained horribly through a phonograph and its bad speaker and its paltry replacement for being there live to see the music. And you will see that that too is uh, beautiful and meaningful. Now we will fast forward to 1832, where Alexis de Tocqueville is uh, visiting America. And this comes from his, uh, from his great book, Democracy in America. This is what he has to say. In America, the passion for material well-being is not always exclusive, but it is general. While not everyone experiences it in the same way, all feel it. Minds are universally preoccupied with meeting the body's every need and attending to life's little comforts. Something similar is becoming more and more apparent in Europe. Among the causes that produce these similar effects in both worlds, several bear on my subject, and I should point these out. When wealth is settled on certain families by inheritance, we find large numbers of men who enjoy material well-being, but not as an exclusive taste. What grips the heart most powerfully is not the peaceful possession of a precious object, but the imperfectly satisfied desire to possess it and the constant fear of losing it. In aristocratic societies, the rich, never having known any condition different from their own, have no fear of changing it. They can scarcely imagine anything else, and for them, therefore, material well-being is not the purpose of life, it is just a way of living. They look upon it, in a sense, as synonymous with existence, and they enjoy it without even thinking about it. Since the natural and instinctive taste for well-being that everyone shares is thus satisfied, without difficulty and without fear, the souls of men turn elsewhere and harness themselves to some grander, more difficult undertaking, which animates and engages them. So it is that even when material gratifications lie ready to hand, the members of an aristocracy often exhibit a haughty contempt for the very pleasures they enjoy, and are able to call upon remarkable reserves of strength when obliged to end and forego them, to are obliged in the end to forego them. Every revolution that has disrupted or destroyed an aristocracy has shown how easily people accustomed to the superfluous can do without the necessary, whereas men who have achieved comfort laboriously, can scarcely go on living after they lose it. If I turn now from the upper ranks to the lower classes, I will find analogous effects produced by different causes. In nations where the aristocracy dominates society and keeps it immobile, the people eventually become accustomed to poverty as the rich do to opulence. The latter do not concern themselves with material well-being because they possess it without effort. The former do not think about it because they have no hope of acquiring it, and do not know it well enough to desire it. In those kinds of society, the poor man's imagination is diverted towards the other world. Though gripped by the miseries of real life, it escapes their hold and seeks its satisfactions elsewhere. 
By contrast, when ranks lose their distinctions and privileges are destroyed, when patrimonies are divided and entitlement and liberty spread, the longing to acquire well-being enters the imagination of the poor man, and the fear of losing it enters that of the rich. A host of modest fortunes are amassed. Those who possess such fortunes enjoy sufficient material gratifications to conceive a taste for them, and not enough to be content with them. Hence, they are forever seeking to pursue or hold on to pleasures that are as precious as they are incomplete and fleeting. This, of course, in the voice of someone who apparently has never been without anything and doesn't know what it means to be in need. Uh, he goes on to say, In casting about for a passion that might be natural in men, spurred on as well as constrained by the obscurity of their origins and the modesty of their fortunes, I find none that suits them better than the taste for well-being. The passion for material well-being is essentially a middle-class passion. It grows and spreads with that class. It becomes preponderant when the class does. From there it reaches up into the upper ranks of society, and it descends among the people. In America I found no citizen so poor that he did not gaze with hope and longing upon the pleasures of the rich, or that his imagination did not savor in advance goods that fate obstinately refused to grant him. On the other hand, I never found among wealthy Americans that proud disdain for material well-being that can sometimes be seen even in the most opulent and dissolute of aristocracies. Most of those wealthy people had been poor. They had felt the spur of need. They had waged a long battle against hostile fortune. And though victory was now theirs, the passions that had accompanied the struggle survived. They remained as though intoxicated amid the petty pleasures they had pursued for forty years. Not that one does find, not that one does not find in the United States as elsewhere, a fairly large number of wealthy people who, having inherited their property, find themselves effortlessly in possession of an opulence they did not acquire. Yet even they seem no less attached to the gratifications of material life. Love of well-being has become the national and dominant taste. The mainstream of the human passions runs in this direction and sweeps everything along with it. And uh, that might be the vilest thing I've read here so far. Uh, <laughs> that just goes to show you um, that uh, we can't really talk about an evolution of intellectual ideas when you have uh, something so wise lit written almost 2,000 years ago and something uh, so empty written about 200 years ago. But uh, there is a lesson for 2022. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. 
Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.